Today I'm going to be speaking with David Krakauer, who runs the Santa Fe Institute, one of the, the most interesting organizations scientifically anywhere. And David is a mathematical biologist. He has a PhD in evolutionary theory from Oxford. But being at the Santa Fe Institute puts him at the crossroads of many different areas of inquiry. We talk a little bit about what the Institute is, but given that its focus is on complex systems, the people there attempt to understand complexity using every scientific and intellectual tool available. So David knows a lot about many things, as you'll hear in this conversation. We start by covering some foundational concepts in science, like information and complexity and intelligence, then move on from there to talk about the implications for society and culture and the future. In any case, I love talking to David, and I hope you enjoy the ground we covered. And now I give you David Krakauer. I have David Krakauer on the line. David, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Pleasure to be with you. So David, you gave a, a really fascinating lecture in Los Angeles that I, I want to talk about. And I essentially want you to just track through that as much as you can without, without your visuals. Mm -hmm. And I'm especially interested in the, the, the importance of culture and the, the importance of, of artifacts that we create for human intelligence and resisting our slide into stupidity, which you, which you talked about, which was the focus of your talk. But before we get there, I, let's just set the stage a little bit. Tell us a little bit about your scientific interests and background. So, well, it's great to be with you first. Um, my scientific interests, as I've come to understand them, uh, are essentially grappling with the problem of the evolution of intelligence and stupidity on Earth. And it's quite common for people to talk about intelligence. It's less common for people to talk about stupidity, even though arguably it's more common. Mm. And, um, and so my background is in uh, mathematical evolutionary theory and um, essentially work on information and computation in nature um, that would include the nature that we've created, that we call technology, um, and where it came from, uh, what it's doing today and where it's going in the future. And so, so you would, would you describe yourself as a mathematical biologist? Is that the right category? Yeah, I think it's reasonable. I think, unfortunately, all of these categories are starting to strain a little. Yeah, well, and you're at, now you're running the Santa Fe Institute, which I think quite happily is, its, it's, it's existence seems to be predicated on the, the porousness of these boundaries between disciplines or even their non-existence. And so maybe describe the, the Institute for people who are not familiar with it. Yeah. So the Santa Fe Institute is in Santa Fe, New Mexico, as the name would suggest. It was founded in the mid eighties by a group of Nobel laureates um, from physics and economics and others um, who were interested in trying to do for the complex world what mathematical physics had done so successfully for the simple world. And I should explain that. Mm. So the simple world would be the solar system um, or inorganic chemistry or black holes. They're not easy to understand, but you can encapsulate their fundamental properties by writing down a system of equations. When you get to the complex world, which basically means networked adaptive systems. So that could be a brain, a network of neurons, 
It could be a society. It could even be the internet. And in those networked adaptive systems, complex systems, the kinds of formalisms that we had created historically to deal with simple systems failed. Uh, that's why we don't have Maxwell's equations of the brain, right? We have large textbooks with many anatomical descriptions, some schematic representations of function, and some very specialized models. And the question for us at SFI is, are there general principles that span the economy, brains, the internet, and so on? And what is the most natural way of articulating them mathematically and computationally? Mm. And how is SFI different from the, the Institute for Advanced Study at Princeton, where I think you also were, if I'm not mistaken? Yes, that's right. So um, the IAS in Princeton is a lot older. It was founded in the 30s. We were founded in the 80s. And... Um, IAS is an extraordinary place, but it, the model, if you like, is much more traditional. So IAS has tenure, it has departments, and it has schools. Mm. We do not have tenure, we do not have departments, and we do not have schools. Right. Um, so they've created, in some sense, they've replicated, I guess, um, a very successful model, that is the university model. We decided to start again from a blank slate, and we asked the question, if you were now reinventing the research institute based on everything that we now know, post-scientific revolution, post-technological revolution, et cetera, what should it look like? And so it's, it's a more radical uh, model. And uh, we, so we decided, decided very early just to discard any mention of disciplines and, and departments and focus as hard as we could on the common denominators of the complex systems that we were studying. And it's, it's truly interdisciplinary. You have economists and mathematicians and biologists and physicists all throwing their, in their two cents on the same problems. Is that correct? Absolutely. I mean, just as an example, I mean, we, we're, you know, there's all this debate now about the demise of the humanities. And, but we, from the very beginning, decided that that wasn't a worthwhile distinction between the natural sciences and the humanities. So we were working on the archaeology of the Southwest and using computational and physical models since the 80s and have produced what is by now a very well-known series of theories for why, for example, um, some of the uh, native civilizations of the American Southwest declined, um, the origin of ancient cities. And all of these are based on computational and energetic theories and close collaborations between archaeologists and, say, physicists. So the way we do it, I don't like to call it interdisciplinary because that's, in some sense, genuflecting in the direction of a superstition that mm -hmm. I no longer take seriously. Right. And so what happens when you ignore all of that and say, let's certainly use the skills that we've acquired in the disciplines, but let's leave them at the door and, and just be intelligent about complex problems. Yeah, really what you have is an institutional argument, it seems to me, for the unity of knowledge or consilience, that really the, the boundaries between disciplines are much more a matter of university architecture and just the kind of bandwidth issues of any individual life where you have, to, it takes a long time to get very good at one thing. And so by definition, you know, someone starts out in one area as opposed to another and spends a rather long time there in order to get competent. Anyway, I, th I think what you're doing there is, is very exciting. Thank you. So before we get into your talk, I, there's a few things I just want you to enlighten me and our audience about, because it, there's some concepts here that, that you are going to use that I think are difficult to get one's head around. And the first 
is the concept of information. And I think there are many senses in which we use this term and not all of them are commensurable. It seems to me that the, the, there is a root concept, however, that potentially unites fields like genetics and brain science and computer science and even physics. So how do you think about information? Yeah, so I should say we've talked about this before, Sam, and that is it's sometimes what I call the M cubed mayhem. Uh, that is M raised to the power three mayhem. And the mayhem comes from not understanding the difference between mathematics, the first M, mathematical models, the second M, and metaphors, the third. Mm. And there are terms, scientific terms, mathematical terms, that are also used uh, idiomatically or have a colloquial meaning. And they very often get us into you know, deep water, energy, uh, fitness, utility, capacity, uh, information, computation. And so we all use them in our daily lives, um, probably very effectively, but they also have a technical meaning. And what happens often is that uh, arguments uh, flare up because one person is using it mathematically and an, another person metaphorically, and they don't realize they're doing this. So that's the first point to make. Um, and they're all valuable. I don't mean to say that there is only a mathematical definition of information, but it's worth bearing in mind that when I talk about it, that's what I mean. Mm. Um, so that's the first point. It has an beautiful scientific storied history, um, you know, starting with essentially the birth of the field that we now call statistical mechanics. And this was essentially uh, Boltzmann trying to understand the arrow of time in, in, in the physical world, the origin of irreversibility. You know, why is it that you can crack and break an egg, uh, but the reverse almost never happens? Why is it that you can burn wood into ash and smoke, but the reverse almost never happens? And he created in the 1870s a theory called the H-theorem, uh, where he essentially had in mind lots of little billiard balls bumping into each other chaotically. He called it molecular chaos. And through repeated collisions, you start with a fairly ordered billiard table, but at the end, uh, it, they're distributed rather randomly all over the table. And that was Boltzmann. And he thought maybe the underlying molecular structure of matter was like lots of little billiard balls and the reason why we observe certain phenomena in nature as irreversible is because of molecular chaos. And that was formalized later by a very famous American physicist, Josiah Willard Gibbs. But many years later, uh, the baton was picked up by an engineer working at Bell Labs, Claude Shannon. Mm. And he realized that there was a connection between physics and irreversibility and the arrow of time and information. It was very deep insight that he had. And before explaining how that works, it's what did, what did Claude Shannon do? He said, look, here's what information is. Let's say I want you to navigate from one part of a city to another, from A to B, in a car. I could just drive around randomly. It would take an awful long time to get there, but I might eventually get there. Alternatively, I could give you a map or driving directions, and you'd get there very efficiently. And the difference between the time taken to get there randomly and the time taken to get there with directions is a measure of information. Mm. And Shannon mathematized that concept and said, that is the reduction of uncertainty. You start off not knowing where to go. You get information in the form of a map or driving directions. 
and then you get there directly. And he said he formalized that and he called that information. And um, it's the opposite of what Boltzmann and Gibbs were talking about. It's a system going, instead of going from the ordered into the disordered state, the billiard balls on the table, starting maybe in a lattice and ending up randomly distributed, uh, it's going from a state of them being random because you don't know where to go to becoming ordered. And so it turns out that Shannon realized that information is in fact the negative of thermodynamic entropy. And it was a beautiful connection that he made between what we now think of as the science of information and what was the science of statistical physics. Well, so let's bring this into the domain of biology because I've been hearing now with increasing frequency this idea that biological systems and even brains do not process information and that uh, the, the analogy of the brain as a computer is no more valid than the, than the analogy of it as a system of hydraulic pumps or a wheel works powered by springs and gears or a telegraph. You know, these are all old analogies to the, the, the most current technology of the time. And there, there was an article in Aeon magazine, I think it's just an online journal, that probably a dozen people sent to me. And I thought it made this case very badly. And you and I talked about this briefly when we mm -hmm. first met. Yes. Now, it, it seems to me, I mean, no one to my knowledge thinks that the brain is a computer in exactly the way our current computers are computers. We're not talking about von Neumann architecture in our brains. Yes. But the idea that it doesn't process information at all, and the idea that the claim that it does is just as crazy as claiming that it's a mechanism of gears and springs, strikes me as fairly delusional. And I, but I keep meeting people who will argue this, and, and some of them are very high level in the, in the sciences. So I was hoping we, we could talk a little bit about the ways in which biological systems, in particular brains, encode and, and transmit information. Yes. Yeah, so uh, this takes me right back to my M-cubed mayhem, mm. because that's a beautiful example in that paper of the author not knowing the difference between a mathematical model and a metaphor. And so you gave a beautiful example. You talked about springs and levers and their physical artifacts uh, right, and then there are mathematical models of strings and levers, which are actually used in understanding string theory. Mm. <laughs> so, okay, so let's talk a little bit about the the computer and the brain. It's very important because you mentioned von Neumann, um, and it spans elegantly that spectrum from mathematics to mathematical models to metaphors. Um, the first real theory of computing that we have is due to Alan Turing uh, in the nineteen thirties. And he was a mathematician. Many of him know, many people know him from the movie The Imitation Game and mm. for his extraordinary work on uh, Enigma um, and decoding German submarine codes in the Second World War. Um, but what he's most famous for in our world is answering a really deep mathematical question that was posed by the German mathematician David Hilbert in 1928. And um, Hilbert said, Could I give a machine? a mathematical question or proposition, and it would tell me in reasonable amount of time whether it was true or whether it was false. Right? And that's the question he posed. Could we, in some sense, automate mathematics? And in 1936, Turing, in answering that question, invented a mathematical model that we now know as the Turing machine. And it's a beautiful thing. I'm sure you've talked about it on your show before. And 
Turing did something remarkable. He said, you know, you can't answer that question. There are certain mathematical statements that are fundamentally uncomputable. You could never answer them. And it was a really profound breakthrough in mathematics because it said there are certain things in the world that we could never know through computation. So years later, um, Turing himself in the 40s realized that in solving a mathematical problem, he had actually invented a mathematical model, the Turing machine. And he realized the Turing machine was actually not just a model for solving math problems, but it was actually the model of problem solving itself. And the model of problem solving itself is what we mean by computation. Mm. And in the, in the 1950s, actually 58, John von Neumann, who you mentioned, wrote a book, a very famous book called The Computer and the Brain. Yeah. They said perhaps what Alan Turing had done in his paper on intelligent machinery is given us the mathematical machinery for understanding the brain itself. And at that point, it became a metaphor. And John von Neumann himself realized it was a metaphor, but he thought it was a very powerful one, as they saw, saw often are. So that's the history. And um, so now, up into the present. So as you point out, there's a tendency to be a bit, you know, epistemologically narcissistic. We, we tend to use whatever current model we use and project that onto the natural world as almost the best fitting um, uh, template for how it operates. Yeah. Um, Here's the value and uh, the, or the utility and disutility of the concept. The value of what Turing and von Neumann did was give us a framework for starting to understand how a problem-solving machine could operate. We didn't really have in our mind's eye an understanding for how that could work, and they gave us a model for how it could work. For many reasons, some of which you've mentioned, the model is highly imperfect. Um, computers are not robust. If I stick a pencil in your CPU, your machine will stop working, but I can sever the two hemispheres of the brain and you can still function. Um, you're very efficient. Um, your brain consumes about 20% of the energy of your body, which is like 20 watts. <laughs> it's 20% of a light bulb. Uh, your laptop consumes about that and has, you know, some tiny fraction of your power. Um, and they're highly connected. The neurons are densely wired, whereas that's not true of computer circuits, which are only locally wired. And most importantly, the brain is constantly rewiring and adapting based on inputs, and your, and your computer is not. So we know the ways in which it's not the same. Uh, but, there are, but as I say, it's useful as a, as a thought experiment um, for how the brain might operate. So that's the computer term. But now let's take the information term. That one, for me, and that ma magazine article you mentioned is criticizing the information concept, not the computer concept, mm. which is limited, and we all agree, but the information concept is not, right? So, so I've, we've already determined what information is mathematically. It's the reduction of uncertainty. And if you think about your visual system, if, when you open your eyes in the morning and you don't know what's out there in the world, uh, electromagnetic energy, uh, which is transduced by photoreceptors in your retina, and then transmitted through to visual cortex, allows you to know something about the world that you did not know before. So it's like going from the billiard balls all over the table to the billiard balls in a particular configuration. Very formally speaking, you have reduced the uncertainty about the world, you've increased the information, and it turns out you can measure that mathematically. And the extent to which that's useful is proved by essentially neuroprosthetics. Mm -hmm. 
the information theory of the brain allows us to build cochlear implants. It allows us to control robotic limbs with our brains. So it's not a metaphor. It's a deep mathematical principle. It's a principle that allows us to understand how the brain is operating and re-engineer it. Mm. And so it's one of those cases where I think the article is so utterly confused uh, that it's almost not worth attending to. Uh, the Now, that's information. Information processing, if that's synonymous in your vocabulary with computing in the Turing sense, then you and I have just agreed that it's not right. But if information processing is what you do with Shannon information, for example, to transduce electromagnetic impulses into electrical firing patterns in the brain, then it's absolutely applicable. Mm. Um, and then how you store it, and then how you combine information sources. So when I see an orange, it's orange color, and it's also a sphere. I have tactile, uh, mechanical impulses. Um, I have visual, electromagnetic electromagnetic impulses, and in my brain they're combined into a co coherent representation of an object in the world, and the coherent representation is in the form of an informational language spiking. And so, uh, you know, it, it's extraordinarily useful. It's allowed us to engineer uh, neuro, you know, uh, biologically mimetic architectures, and it's made a huge difference in the lives of many individuals um, who have been born with uh, severe disabilities. So I think we can take that article and shred it. Yeah. As I was reading the article, again, this is, it was one of those almost not even wrong categories of error, but, you know, I was thinking of things like genes can be on or off, right? So there's, mm -hmm. there's, a, there's a digital component going all the way down into the genome. And, and the, the genome itself is a kind of memory, right? It's a, it's, a, it's a memory for structure and physiology and even certain behaviors that have proved adaptive in the past. And, and, and therefore, it's a template for producing those in future organisms. That's, that's exactly right. And so that's the great power of mathematical concepts because, and again, we have to be clear in making distinctions between the metaphor of memory right? Mm. Um, and the mathematical model of memory. And, one, and the beautiful thing, that's why mathematics is so extraordinary and powerful, is that once we move to the mathematical model of memory, exactly as you say, you can demonstrate that there are memories stored in genes, um, there are memories stored in the brain, there are memories stored in culture, and they bear an extraordinary family resemblance through the resemblance in the mathematical equations, so you described it as consilience. Mm. Uh, in Ed Wilson's term, you could describe it as unification in the language of physics. And they're totally legitimate. Uh, where we run into, into, into trouble is if we don't move to mathematics, but we only remain in the world of metaphor. And there, of course, um, everyone has a slightly different matrix of associations, and you can never fully resolve the, the ambiguities. Right. Except, though, even at the level, forget about the math for a second, and let's just talk about something that's perilously close to metaphor. We are simply talking about cause and effect relationships that, in this case, reliably link inputs and outputs, right? So there's, I mean, there is just a, even in that article, he was talking about the nervous system being changed by experience. He just didn't want to talk about the resulting changes in terms of memory or information storage or encoding or anything else that, that suggested an analogy to a computer. But there's just this, this fact that 
change in physical structure can produce reliable change in its capacities going forward. Yes. And you know, whether we want to call that memory or not, or learning or not, biologically, physically, that's what we're talking about. Absolutely, it's what we're talking about. No, you're right. You see, that's the point. It has to do with this legitimate fear of anthropomorphism. And, um, and I think that what we do in these sort of more exact sciences is try and pin down our dip definitions so as to eliminate some of the ambiguities. They never go away entirely. But my, my suspicion, Sam, is that the author of that um, article will simply find a language that isn't, doesn't have its roots, if you like, in, in the world of information and apply these new terms. But we would realize if we read it uh, through thoroughly that they were, in fact, just synonyms. Right? He, right. he would find himself having to use these terms because they are, to the best of our knowledge, the best terms we have to explain the regularities we observe. Right. And, and yet we don't have to use terms like hydraulic pumps or the four humors, or we can grant that there have been bad analogies in the past where the details are not actually conserved in any way going forward. Well, but look at a good, you know, it's a beautiful example, because where we have used that is if you're talking about your, uh, cardiac system yeah, yeah. or your urinogenital system, it is entirely appropriate to use Harvey's uh, model, which was the pump. Right? Yeah, no doubt, so no. the ones that worked have stuck. And, um, and I think it's just time that will tell us whether or not our use of the informational concept is, uh, will be an anachronism uh, or will have enduring value. Well, for those of you who are interested to read this, this paper that we are trashing, I will put the link on my blog beneath where I embed this podcast. So now, now moving on to your core area of interest, we've dealt with information. What is complexity? Yes. And so that's a very, that's a wonderful example of one of these terms that we use in daily life, but also has mathematical uh, meaning. So um, the simplest way to think about complexity is as follows. Um, imagine you had a very regular object, like a cube, um, you could express it just by describing its linear dimensions. Right? And um, that would tell you what a cube is. And imagine you want to explain something at the other end of the spectrum, like a gas in a room. Mm. You could articulate that very reliably uh, by just giving the mean velocities of particles in air, you know. So these two extremes, the um, very regular, um, a crystal, um, to the very random, a gas, um, permit of a description which is very short. And so over the phone or over Skype as we're speaking, I could describe to you very reliably uh, a regular object or a very irregular object. But now let's imagine you said, can you please describe to me, David, um, a mouse? And I said, well, ooh, it's this sort of weird <laughs> tubular thing. And it's got hairs at one end. It's got this long appendage at the other, et cetera. It would take an awfully long time to describe. And complexity is essentially proportional to that description. So that's a metaphor. Mm. And it turns out mathematically that complex phenomena live somewhere between the regular and the random, 
And their hallmark signature is that their mathematical descriptions are long. Mm. And that's what's made complexity science so hard because Einstein could write down a beautiful equation like E plus MC squared that captures the equivalence between energy and mass and has all these beautiful implications in special relativity, you know, less than a line. But how would you write down a mouse, which seems like a much more boring thing mm -hmm. than, than energy and matter? And you can't. And so the, that's one way, intuitive way of thinking about a complex phenomena, which is how long does the description have to be to reliably capture much of what you consider interesting about it? And one point to make immediately is that, you know, if you look at physical phenomena, they started off long too, right? So before Kepler revolutionized our understanding of celestial mechanics, we had armillary spheres with all these epicycles and mm. deference, right? Explaining in, incorrectly the circular motion of, of, of celestial mass. And, um, and it took a while uh, for us to realize that there was a very compact, elegant way of describing them. And it could be that for many, many complex phenomena, there is a very elegant, compact way of describing them. But many others, I don't think that will be the case. So complexity are, as I said, these networked adaptive systems. Complexity itself as a concept mathematically tries to capture how hard uh, it is to describe a phenomenon. And they get as they get more complex, they get long, these descriptions get longer and longer and longer and longer. Right, right. You said something about randomness there that caught my ear because I thought, so if I gave you a, a truly random string of digits, unless you're talking about that there was some, some method by which to produce it reliably, let's, let's say, you know, like the decimal expansion of pi, yes. that can be compressed. But if it's just a truly random series of digits, that's not compressible, right? That's just that's, that's absolutely right. Okay. And so that that you know, that's a very important distinction. And that is, I can describe the process of generating heads and tails hmm. by describing the dynamics of a coin, and so that's very short, right? Uh, but if I was trying to describe the thing I observe. Uh, then you're saying it would be incompressible and the description would be as long as the sequence described. You're, in, in all of these cases, you're always talking about um, the underlying causal process that generates the pattern mm. and not the pattern itself. And, uh, and that's a very important distinction. So now, I think this is the first time I've ever conducted a conversation or interview like this, which is just kind of stepping through definitions, but I, I think it's, it's warranted in this case. Mm -hmm. So what is intelligence and, and how, how is it related to complexity? Yeah. So, you know, intelligence is, as I say to people, um, one of the topics about which we have been most stupid, right? It's, mm -hmm. and, um, and in so many ways, and I, we probably shouldn't get into it, uh, not least that it is the topic about which we are least evolutionary, right? Because all of our definitions of intelligence are based on measurements that can only be applied to humans, and by and large, humans that speak English or what have you. So it's one of those areas with, with, that's been extremely foolishly pursued. Um, so I don't mean an IQ test, okay? Um, because the IQ test is not interesting if you're trying to calculate the intelligence of an octopus, mm. uh, which I would like to know because I believe in evolution. <laughs> uh, and I think that we need to understand where these things come from. And, and just having a definition that applies to one particular species doesn't help us. 
Um, so what is it? And we've talked about entropy and computation, and they're going to be the keys to understanding intelligence. Um, and so let's go back to randomness. Uh, the examples I like to give is the Rubik's Cube, because it's just a beautiful little uh, mental model, metaphor. Um, if I gave you a cube and I asked you to solve it, and you just randomly manipulated it, since it has on the order of 10 quintillion solutions, which is a very large number, um, you basically, if you were immortal, would eventually solve it. Hmm. Um, and, uh, but it would take the lifetime of several universes to do so. That is random performance. Stupid performance is if you took one face of the cube and you just manipulated that one face and turned it, rotated it forever. And as everyone knows, if you did that, you would never solve the cube if you weren't already at the solution. <laughs> and uh, it would be an mm. infinite process uh, that would never be resolved. That rule is, in my definition, stupid. It is significantly worse than chance. Now let's take someone who's learned how to manipulate a cube and is familiar with various rules. And these rules allow you from any initial configuration to solve the cube in 20 moves or less. That is intelligent behavior. So significantly better than chance. And this sounds a little counterintuitive, perhaps, until you realize that's how we use the word in our daily lives. Um, you know, if I sat down with an extraordinary mathematician and I said, I can't solve that equation. And they say, well, no, it's easy. Here, this is what you do. And you look at it and you say, oh, yes, it is easy, right? You made that look easy. That's what we mean when we say someone is smart. They make things look easy. Uh, if, on the other hand, I sat down with someone who was incapable and they just kept, mm. you know, dividing by two, you know, for whatever reason, uh, I'd say, what on earth are you doing? What a stupid thing to do. You'll never solve the problem. You know, what a, what a foolish thing to do. What an inefficient thing to do. Right? So that is what we mean by intelligence. Uh, it's, it's the thing that we do that ensures that the problem is very efficiently solved and, and in a way that makes it appear effortless. And stupidity is a set of rules that we use to ensure that the problem will be solved in longer than chance or never, right? Um, and, and is nevertheless uh, pursued with alacrity and enthusiasm. And so, so now we're getting closer to the, the actual substance of, of the lecture you gave that I want you to recapitulate part of here because it, I just found it fascinating and, and, and I mean, you could, you can recapitulate as much as you want to of it, but I'm in particular interested in the boundary line you drew between biology and culture and the way in which culture is a machine really for increasing our intelligence. And then you, at some point express some real fear that we are producing culture or or stewarding our institutional intelligence in a way that is actually making us biologically or you know personally less intelligent perhaps to a dangerous degree in certain circumstances so if you could just get get us there uh, at this point yeah so this um is a little bit of a, a lengthy narrative i'm going to try and compress it i'll make it as least complex as possible um so, you know, most of us are brainwashed to believe that we're born with a certain innate intelligence and we 
learn things uh, to solve problems, but our intelligence goes basically unchanged, right? And so, and you hear this all the time in conversations. They'll say, you know, that person's really smart, it's just they never worked very hard, and they didn't learn very much. Um, whereas that person's not very smart, but they learned a great deal and it makes them look smarter, that sort of thing. Mm. And I think that's absolute rubbish. Um, so I think there's a very real sense in which education and learning makes you smarter. Uh, so that's sort of, in some sense, my premise. And but but just to stop there for a second. You you wouldn't dispute though that there are differences in what psychologists have have come to call G, so you know, general intelligence, and that this is somehow not necessarily predicated upon acquiring new information. I would I would dispute that. Sam. So so you, so would, you think that yes. you, you think the concept of IQ is just useless, not just in octopi but in people more or less <laughs> and uh, and i should explain why and, and i think you know a lot of recent research is required to understand why um i mean for let's just take an example there are just canonical examples you know the young mozart right mm. people will say well look wait a minute this is a kid at the age of seven you know had absolute pitch and you know in his teens you could play him a symphony that he could recollect note for note and reproduce on a score, and et cetera, right? And surely this is an individual who's born. And what we now understand, of course, is that his father was a tyrant um, who from an extraordinarily young age drilled him and his sister in, in acquiring perfect pitch, in, in, in the subtleties of musical notation, and um, consequently he was able to acquire very young characteristics that normally you wouldn't acquire later because normally you wouldn't be drilled. Mm. And so, and in fact, more and more studies indicating that if you subject individuals to deliberative practice regimes, they can acquire skills that seem almost, you know, extraordinary. Let's take G and um, the IQ in general. So we now know uh, that what it really seems to be measuring is working memory. And, uh, Many working memory tasks are correlated and, and they live on this low dimensional space that we call G. And um, now, one of the classic studies was the number of numbers that you could hold in your head, right? In other words, I uh, recite off a number of numbers and I ask you to remember them. And 10 minutes later, I ask you, you're not allowed to write them down. Uh, but what you do is you replay them in your mind. And, you know, people could do 10, maybe they could do 11. And this was considered to be some upper limit on our short-term uh, memory for numbers. And yet a series of experiments have now been studied where through very intelligent and uh, ingenious um, means of encoding numbers, we have people now who can remember up to 300. And these are individuals, by the way, who at no point in their lives ever showed any particular extraordinary memory capacity. And so the evidence is on the side of plasticity, not on innate aptitudes. And to the extent that IQ is fundamentally measuring um, working memory, we now know how to start extending it. So that's, that's an important point. Um, I wouldn't deny that there are innate variations. I mean, I am not uh, six foot five, I'm not even six foot. And so I will never be a basketball player. And so there are functions in the world uh, that um, are responsive to variation that looks as if it's somewhat inflexible. But in the world of the brain, 
given that it is not a computer and the wiring diagram is not fixed in the factory but actually uh, adapts to inputs, uh, there's much more hope that the variation is, and, and in, fact, in fact evidence, that the variation is much greater than we had thought. So the plasticity and trainability can just ride atop variation that exists that is innate. So I mean, you, you could have differences in aptitude with and without training. But that's exactly right. And I think, Sam, that's precisely true. And I think the open question for us is how much of that, um, if you like, innate Lego material is universal, mm. right? Whereas how many of those pieces had already been pre-assembled into little castles and cars, which we then could build upon. And I think that are some people arriving on the stage with an advantage is actually not known. And I think all I'm reporting is that the current deliberative practice data suggests that that's less true right. the, than we thought it was. I, that, that's the point. Right. Well, which puts the onus to an even greater degree than, than most people would expect on culture and on what you do with your time and on parenting and all of this machinery that is outside any individual brain which is in a very material sense augmenting its intelligence and so take us into that direction yeah so that that's a very important point so that that's why that that connection is is important to make um so okay so now we've basically understood what intelligence is what stupidity is um we understand that we are flexible to an extraordinary degree maybe not infinitely so um and as you point out the inputs then become much more important than we had thought in the past. And so let's now move into uh, intelligent or what, or what sometimes gets called cognitive artifacts. Um, so here's an example. Um, your ability to do mathematics or perform mathematical reasoning is not something you were born with. You did not invent numbers. You did not invent geometry or topology. Uh, or calculus, or algebraic geometry, or number theory, or anything else for that matter. They were all given to you if you chose to study mathematics as a class, in a class. And, uh, and what those things allow you to do is solve problems that other people cannot solve. And for all of us in our lives, numbers are the, you know, in some sense, the lowest hanging fruit in our mathematical education. Mm. And so let's look at numbers. There are many number systems in the world. Um, they're very ancient, uh, ancient Sumerian cuneiform numbers, about 5,000 years old, so ancient Egyptian numbers. And here's a good example of stupidity in culture. Western Europe, for 1,500 years, used Roman numbers, Roman numerals, from about the 2nd century um, BC to about 1500 AD, towards the end of the Holy Roman um, Empire. And Roman numbers are good at measuring magnitude, the number of objects, but terrible for performing calculation. Mm. So adding to, like, what's X plus V? You know, what's X, one, one, multiplied by one V, and so on. It just doesn't work. Mm. <laughs> and yet, for 1,500 years, the human brain opted to deliberate over arithmetic operations using Roman numerals that don't work. Mm. And the consequence of that is that Europeans, for much of their history, could not divide and multiply. 
And it's, it's an extraordinary thing because it's unbelievably stupid. And it's unbelievably stupid when you realize that in India and Arabia, they had a number system, started in India, moved to Arabia, uh, that was available from about the second century, uh, that is the one that we use today, that would effortlessly be able to multiply and divide numbers. And so that's a beautiful example of the interface between culture and our own reasoning. And the reason it's so intriguing is because once I've taught you a number system, like the Indian Arabic number system, base 10 number system, you don't need the world anymore. You don't need paper anymore to write it down. You can do these operations in your mind's eye. And that's what makes them so fascinating. And I call that kind of object that was invented over the course of centuries by many, many minds, complementary cognitive artifacts. And their unique characteristic to is not only do they augment your ability to reason in the form, for example, of multiplying or dividing, but when I take them away from you, you have in your mind a trace uh, of their attributes that you can deploy. Mm. And, and that, it's interesting, that's probably what's new in thinking about the evolution of cultural intelligence for a long time. Um, psychologists, cognitive scientists, archaeologists have understood that there are objects in the world that allow us to do things we couldn't do otherwise, right? I mean, a fork, right? Or a, a scythe, right? Or a wheel, you know, it's been understood. But there is a special kind of object in the world that not only does what the wheel and the scythe and the fork does, but it also changes the wiring of your brain so that you can build in your brain a virtual fork or a virtual scythe or a virtual wheel. Of course, not those, but... Mm. And, and that is, I would claim, by the way, the unique characteristic of human evolution. Wouldn't you put language itself into this category? A absolutely, I would. Absolutely, I would. The reason I separate them, by the way, is that many people erroneously uh, assume that the other examples are derivative of language. Mm. Most famously mathematics. Um, it was thought up until quite recently that mathematical reasoning depended on linguistic reasoning, and that in fact it was just a special form of it. Uh, we now know that's not true. Uh, and in fact that the uh, both humans and non-human primates are capable of representing number uh, equally well, um, and in fact, humans, when they perform mathematics, are not using the linguistic parts of their brain, but the parts of their brain that represent number that we share with non-human primates. Right. So what else would you put in this list of, of cognitive artifacts? So the complementary cognitive artifacts, uh, the things that have that desirable uh, property that I mentioned, numbers. Um, the other example that I'm very enamored of is the abacus. Mm. And uh, the abacus is a device uh, for, for doing arithmetic in the world with our hands and eyes. Uh, but expert abacus users um, no longer have to use the physical abacus. They actually turn out to create a virtual abacus in the visual cortex. And that's particularly interesting because a novice abacus user like me or you, um, we think about them either verbally or, or, or in terms of our frontal cortex. Very inefficient. And we have to really deliberate over how to do a very basic sum. But as you get better and better and better, the place in the brain where the abacus is represented shifts. And it shifts from language-like areas, like Broca's areas, to visuospatial areas in the brain. Uh, and so it, it really is a beautiful example of an object in the world 
restructuring the brain in order to be able to perform a task efficiently, in other words, by my definition, intelligently. Mm. Um, maps. Maps are a beautiful example of this. Um, so let's imagine we don't know how to get around a city. Over the course of centuries or decades or years, according to the scale, many people contribute towards the uh, drawing a very accurate map. And But you, in one generation, can look at that map, and if you sit down and pour over it, you can memorize the whole damn thing. And you now have in your mind's eye what took thousands of people thousands of years to construct. You've changed the internal wiring of your brain in a very real sense to encode spatial relations in the world that you could never have directly experienced. Right? And that's a beautiful complementary cognitive artifact. Mm. And then some mechanical instruments. You could say that an armillary sphere or an astrolabe or a sextant or a quadrant, as you become more and more familiar with them, you have to use them less and less, right? And so you, you build, if you like, a kind of a simulation in your brain of the physical object. And at some point, in some cases, you can dispense with the object altogether. The other shoe drops. There's another kind of cognitive artifact that you want to talk about. And tell us about the downside to all of our cultural creativity here. Yeah, so uh, there's another kind of cognitive artifact. And I mentioned a few, in fact, the scythe or the wheel uh, or the fork, um, that don't lend themselves to rewiring and hence making the cognitive representation more efficient. Uh, but in fact, it's the opposite. Um, and so consider a mechanical calculator. Um, or a digital calculator on your computer. It allows you, it augments your intelligence in the presence of the uh, device. And so me and my phone are really smart, right? Mm. <laughs> but if you take that away, you're certainly no better than you were before, and you're probably worse because you probably forgot how to do long division because you're so dependent on your, on your phone to do it for you. Now, I'm not making a normative recommendation here. I'm not saying we should therefore take the phones of people away from them and force them to do long division. I'm simply pointing out there's a difference. And, um, and the difference is that these, what I call competitive cognitive artifacts, don't so much amplify human representational ability, but replace it. Uh, another example that everyone's very enamored of now, rightly, are classifier systems and machine learning. And so we have this beautiful example recently um, of AlphaGo, uh, a deep belief neural network being trained to beat an extraordinary ninth dan Go player. Um, that machine is basically opaque even to its designers. And uh, it replaces our ability to reason about um, a game. It doesn't augment it. Another example would be the car. The automobile is one of my favorites because an automobile clearly allows us to move very quickly over an, an even surface. And uh, we are utterly dependent on them, especially here in the Southwest where I live. Um, but if you took it away, <laughs> I would be no better than I was before. And probably I would be worse because I would be unfit. <laughs> uh, I've been so accustomed to sitting in a car for a long time. And moreover, it's a dangerous artifact because it kills so many people. Mm. And so the vehicle is a beautiful example of a competitive cognitive artifact that we have accepted because its utility value is so high, even though uh, it actually compromises our ability to function without it. 
And, um, and I think the world can be divided into these two kinds of cultural objects. And the question, of course, is, can we depend on these objects always being around? Mm. So in the case of the competitive cognitive artifact, if we cannot, then we should worry, right? Because when they're taken away, we'll probably be worse off than we were before. The, the car is an interesting example because it's just about to do the next iterative leap into being competitive when, with self-driving cars. So you can easily envision a time when self-driving cars are the norm because they're much safer than ape-driven cars. And yet that will probably be a time, almost certainly, where people's driving skills will have atrophied to the point of virtual non-existence so that you, you couldn't take over even if you, you certainly couldn't be counted upon to take over in any competent way once we've lived with these in the presence of this technology long enough. That's absolutely right. And it's interesting because the driverless car does several things at once. One is it eliminates the leg. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and the second thing is it eliminates our map making ability because you don't have, right? And so on. So it actually assaults several uh, cognitive capacities in, at once. And, and I do think, I really think the, 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 the debate that we need to be having, and this is where I've been somewhat frustrated by all of the um, singularity debate because, or the uh, AI uh, doom and gloom debate, because the argument that seems to be playing out uh, in tech circles is, you know, will we create a machine that will turn around and say, you expend too much energy, uh, you have a disrespect for the environment, I'm going to make you a battery, right? mm. the matrix nightmare. Mm. Whereas the real discussion that we should be having is, that might be a discussion in 100 years' time, but the imminent and practical debate is what to do about competitive cognitive artifacts um, that are already leaving an impression on our brains that is arguably negative. And, and what I, the, when I have a discussion with someone about this topic, as a rule, the only recourse that they have, and it's totally reasonable, is they're not going away. Mm. And, but there's something else that hasn't been mentioned here, and this is really interesting, which has to do with the complex system of the brain and the domino-like effect and interconnectedness of representational systems. So it's been known, for example, for a long time, that the abacus, if you become competent at the abacus, you're not just competent at arithmetic. It actually has really interesting indirect effects on linguistic competence and geometric reasoning generally. And so it's not, it doesn't have a firewall around it such that its functional advantages are confined to arithmetic. And in fact, I think that's generally true for all interesting complementary cognitive artifacts. So if I give you a fork, or chopsticks, or a knife, um, it's true, you're better able to manipulate and eat your food. But you also develop dexterity. And that dexterity can be generalized to new instances. And for me, the main concern is not only that the world will go south, and we'll no longer have highways and cars, but actually, the indirect, diffusive impact of the eliminating a complementary cognitive artifact, like a map, mm. on other characteristics that we engage in. And I, and I would really strongly claim, and this is where the debate needs to be had, because I don't have an answer, is that your familiarity with 
map making and topographical, topological, geometric reasoning is generally valuable in your life, not just in navigating across a city. And so taking away a map doesn't just make you worse at getting from one door to another. It makes you worse in many ways. Yeah, I I think there are probably many other examples of this. I'm not very close to this research, but I know that many learning experts believe that cursive writing, for instance, is actually important to learn even though you know we're living in a in increasingly a, a typing world and ultimately a voice recognition world because it's actually intimately connected with just the the acquisition of literacy itself i mean just the, the pace at which you write when you write cursively the linking of letters is not surrounded by a firewall it's not a discrete task it's actually related to learning to read well yeah i mean a, a good example of this by the way um that you know both Einstein and Frank Lloyd Wright uh, depended upon was toy cubes. So early in their youth, they both became very enamored of these uh, cubes mm. and would construct, you know, like Minecraft, mm-hmm. you know, they construct, uh, construct these worlds out of cubes. And both of them claimed, uh, Frank Lloyd Wright in the case of architecture and um, Einstein in the case of the geometry of the universe that the intuitions that they built up playing with these cubes were instrumental in their later lives. And I would claim the same is true for maps, right? I mean, if you know how to navigate through a true space, like a Euclidean space or a curved space on the surface of the earth, that allows you to think about different kinds of spaces, relationship spaces, right? Or idea spaces. And the notion of a path from one idea to the other as a metaphor actually has a immediate and natural implementation in terms of uh, a path in real space. And so you can see immediately how these things are of value more broadly. But you prefaced what you said here that you weren't making any normative claims, but really, really the norms just come flooding in once you talk about the possible changes in our cognition and, and perhaps uh, you know even our ethics once you begin to change the the cultural landscape with competitive as opposed to cooperative technology. So Let's talk a little bit about the kind of normative claims one might want to make here, because there, there's the norms that, as they apply to each person's specific abilities, I mean, you know, most of us want to maximize our, our capacity to get what we want out of life. And if we were convinced that some technology that we were using was reliably diminishing that capacity or, or producing a, a spectrum of effects that we were not considering, but you know, once, once they came to our attention, we would have to grant that these were negative in our lives. And, and then there's just the, the collective norms where we talk about you know, whole societies being capable of a certain kind of creativity and cooperation and other societies obviously not. You know, other societies that are just in a perpetual state of self-siege or you know, civil war. So how do you think about norms in this context? Yeah, it's very tricky. I mean, so the first thing I should say is I do agree with you that there are, in some domains, absolutely better ways of being. Um, and so I'll give you an example from, you know, writing code for computers. Um, imagine that we still had to write uh, with pun- punched cards. I mean, there would be no word processor, right? Mm. <laughs> so the, the idea of taking a typewriter and connecting it to a computer was an extraordinary invention, right? And led to word processors and everything else. Um, so, you know, 
well, let's go a little further. Let's imagine that you could only interact with the computer using machine code or binary. Uh, there would be no software as we understand it today, right? Because the projects would always be modest in scale. And so the evolution of computer languages that allowed us to efficiently uh, write code for machines was extraordinary and is, is responsible for the world that we live in today, um, including uh, deep mind, AlphaGo, etc. And And so... There are better ways of interacting with the world. And, um, you know, having a sharp edge is better than not having a sharp edge. And, and I think where things get tricky normatively is when you start talking about refined cultural artifacts and objects. And, and I know this is an interest of yours. Um, different ways of reasoning, mm. you know, religiously reasoning about the world or scientifically or mathematically or poetically and so on. And are they like, you know, machine code versus Python? Hmm. Um, is there a sense in which a, a certain culture has discovered a more efficient way of interacting with physical and cultural reality? And I think it's a really interesting question. And I think that we know domains where the answer is yes, right? Um, you know, having mathematics is better than not having it. And uh, there are certain things we can do, like navigate when you have it, so and put things on the moon and uh, etc. So I think that uh, so yes, it has incredible cultural implications, and and I think we're just to be honest, not many people think this way about the interaction between uh, brain plasticity and the cultural accumulation of cognitive artifacts. When you do, I have no doubt, uh, and especially in the in relation to collective intelligence and collective stupidity, by the way, mm. which is rule systems that you've accumulated in the brain, which you thought you didn't need and you didn't, that other people think that you do uh, and allow you to interact with the world in a worse way than you did before. Um, and that happens a lot, uh, as we both know. And so that, that, this is a brave new frontier. Um, and and I, would be, I would be extremely interested in understanding it. Um, in fact, one project at the Center for Institute that we now have just started is what we call law OS, the law of the legal operating system of societies. Uh, constitutions are a beautiful example of a memory system that encodes um, historical contingencies, events in the past, and our response to events in the past that had hopefully positive outcomes. And we actually now have 590 uh, legal operating systems, mm. uh, constitutions from around the world. And we can ask, when do they work? When do they fail? What were their cultural implications? Which ones were more likely to lead to despotism? Which ones less likely? So I think this is, needs to be addressed, but I don't have the answers. I wonder if there's a relationship between complexity and ethics or intellectual honesty. This is something I'm just thinking of for the, the first time here. But one difference between religious dogmatism and scientific curiosity is in the boundedness of the worldview that results and in one's tolerance for uncertainty and ambiguity and complexity and the horizon line of one's cognition. So, you know, for a dogmatist, the final answers are already given. I mean, the reality really can't be more complex than what's spelled out in his favorite book. But for a scientist or for just a curious person generally, the investigation of reality is open-ended and who knows what we will learn in the future and who knows how this may or may not supersede or revise our current knowledge. And when I think about the differences between cultures, 
I, I often notice what seems to me to be the simplest or or most crystalline difference between a culture that between two cultures that more or less tells you everything you need to know about the other differences about them. And and my my favorite example, my favorite example of a culture that gets almost every important question wrong is the Taliban. I've been using them for years, but you could also use ISIS or really any society organized under strict Sharia law at the moment. But I, I remember when my friend Christopher Hitchens described his reaction to the the fatwa on his friend Salman Rushdie that, that, that came down in 1989 from Ayatollah Khomeini in Iran. And his first reaction to this, when he heard about it, I think it was a journalist asked for his comment on it. And he said he, it, was a, it was a matter of everything he hated versus everything he loved. The single datum of a ruler of a state suborning the murder of someone for writing a novel, mm-hmm. right? I mean, that encapsulated so much about the culture. And, and, so, and for me, I've often been thinking in terms of, I'm a father of, of two daughters. And when I think about the, the life I want to give them and the kinds of things I, I delight in and worry about on their behalf, and when I compare this to the general attitude of men and, and actually women, frankly, toward women and girls in, in traditional Muslim cultures, the Taliban being the, the ultimate instance, that difference tokens so many other differences. It's like, it's like so when you take the, the, the most excruciating case, we take like honor killing. So you have a, a girl who gets raped or refuses to marry the, you know, the octogenarian, that second cousin who her father picked out for her or who wants to get an education, and she is, with some regularity, gets killed by a, ma- a male family member who considers this a dishonor. And again, I'm not, I'm, I'm not talking about the, the behavior of a lone psychopath. I'm talking about someone who is psychologically normal in a culture that is reinforcing behavior that really only a psychopath in our culture could possibly indulge. Mm-hmm. And so there's, there's this single difference, you know, the treatment of women and girls that I think tells us almost everything we need to know about the likely differences at every other level, intellectually and ethically, in that culture. I mean, so, so we, we know a lot about what that culture is not going to do if it considers it a major priority to keep half of its population illiterate and, you know, living in cloth bags, as, as is the mm-hmm. case under the Taliban. You know, I would, I would too, so just in relation to this discussion, I'd say maybe two things. Mm-hmm. Um, so one is the systems that you're describing are intriguing instances of the persistence of rule systems whose outcomes we would describe without hesitation as stupid. And, um, and certainly in relation to the treatment of human beings. And so that, that is, for me, a genuine scientific problem which is, I happen to know, as you do, that many people in those societies are deeply unhappy. And uh, they, these rule systems are imposed upon them. Mm. And so why is it they're so persistent? A, right? Um, and now, by the way, in Western society, let's be clear, I mean, in, in, women didn't have the vote until you know, the late 20th century. So um, we weren't that much better, uh, but we... we we realize the error of our ways. So that's one. And the second is the implication that I've already described, which is that the rule systems leave an imprint on your reasoning in a very tangible form. Mm. And so if you are encoding a cultural form, 
um, that is, you know, hateful um, uh, or intolerant, um, just like the abacus is leaving an imprint in how you reason, this is leaving an imprint in how you think about the world. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's point one, and I think that's really important and, and, and challenging. And the second, um, sort of in relation to uh, I don't know what to call it, um, you know, what I guess would distinguish a scientist from uh, someone who has an orthodoxy. I mean, I guess it's enshrined in Richard Feynman's quote or definition um, of a scientist is someone who believes in the ignorance of experts. Um, that notion is the singular precondition for the possibility of science, mm. um, which is a fundamental distrust in experts and expertise, uh, you know, including us, right? <laughs> and uh, that's such an interesting concept that, that the rule system, the meta-rule, that allowed for the possibility of the scientific revolution was my first response to any utterance is skepticism. Mm. And, um, and that has something to do with information, right? Which has something, as you pointed out, something to do with uncertainty. And I've often thought that we've cultures tend to treat symptoms, not causes. And, um, and so you've described societies uh, that barely are societies, somewhat hostile doctrines. Um, my feeling is that the way that you really should address these things is somehow start creating a pedagogical schema that allows people to live with uncertainty, mm. that makes them happy about that, not unhappy about it, that reassurance should come in the form of possibility, right? Not the lack of it. Mm. And, and I think that's a deeper issue. And I think it's where our educational institutions are utterly failing because they're all symptomatically targeted. Um, whereas what you're talking about, your notion of Hitchens response about all that I love and all that I hate, um, is this deeper issue of, um, yes, we live in a void. You know, um, the solar system is a dense, bit of matter in an otherwise sparse universe. Um, do you delight in that or are you horrified by that? And that kind of thing, that psychological profile is the thing that inclines you towards science or towards orthodoxies. So now, so kind of opening out to the future from there, how do you view the future of, of civilization and our species in light of this, this basic uncertainty? Feel free to to riff about various dystopian or utopian possibilities, <laughs> but I mean, there's obviously the, on on the one end, there's the 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 idea that we might destroy ourselves, mm -hmm. or that our our global civilization might fail, or there's the possibility that we can dimly imagine of us more or less engineering everything that's wrong with us out of existence and eventually exporting an unimaginably advanced culture to the the rest of the galaxy. Most people seem to feel like we are passing through some kind of bottleneck now, that this century is, is more crucial than most. Do you feel that way? I do and I don't. You know, we've talked about this. And um, I, there are clearly characteristics of the 20th century that are historically, with respect to our own species, unprecedented. Mm. Uh, 
population growth all happened in our century, in the last few decades, right? Um, computer technology, as we understand it, happened in the last few decades. Medicine that works um, according to scientific principles, as opposed to trial and error, um, is uh, very new. Uh, hygiene and the understanding of the uh, implications of biological evolution in terms of its the ethical treatment of, of each other and of non-human animals is new, and so on. So it's an incredible century, <laughs> uh, I think, in many ways. But in other ways, it's not. You could argue that the uh, you know the, the first time that we committed our internal representation to the world in the form of cuneiform um, lettering on clay tablets was a greater <laughs> event in human history with with greater implications moving forward. So I don't I don't know. I think there are times in history where extraordinary things have happened, and um, it's hard to apportion weight, differential weight, to them. Except though, though the one difference I would note there is that. I think you certainly could defend that claim that that was as important a breakthrough and certainly the breakthrough that enabled all the other ones that we deem important. But what you don't have there with the the birth of writing is a technology that gives even a single individual, to say nothing of, of a state, the power to destroy the species, you know, in, ter- in terms of just creating literally the, the, the physical destruction, you know, if you're going to talk about biological terrorism or, or anything else that could get away from us. Yes. No, I know. I, I think, I look, I think that as you, you know, a lot of this is um, quantitative, not qualitative, right? In other words, you know, um, gunpowder and you know, it was clearly extraordinarily important. Um, and the machine gun, as opposed to the cavalry, um, as we saw in the devastation of the first world war i mean so there are so look i don't mean to i i do think we tend to it's a little bit like your earlier question about are we obsessed with information processing now because we live in the computer age mm. and do we not see revolutionary transitions in human culture in the past because we only think they can be computational and atomic or biological weaponry in the present you know that sort of thing so i'm just conscious of that but i do think it's true that there are just extraordinary things that are happening and um and not least i think in our lifetimes the possibility of the demise of a nation state i mean i think that the the kinds of social networks that were the prequels to territories and ultimately nature uh, nations are different now and the possibility of a true reconfiguration of the terrestrial social systems is really intriguing. And for many people who live on Facebook or in computer games, that has already happened, uh, effectively already happened. Uh, it hasn't happened in their tax system, and it hasn't happened in terms of their electoral responsibilities and rights, but it's happened in terms of how they live. So I, I do think it's true that, that there's a big change ahead of us. I, I With respect to pessimism versus optimism, um, I believe in intelligence and I believe in reason and I believe in civilized discourse. And um, I, I am frightened by unconditional optimism um, and um, unconditional pessimism. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. The two bounds have always upset me, you know, and, uh, the, you know, it's like the extremes of politically correct and politically incorrect are both equally abhorrent, right? Mm. And so, 
the middle ground has always seemed to people lukewarm and uninspiring, but to me is exactly the bath I want to sit in. You know? mm. and, and somehow moving forward, these devices, if we are aware of the distinctions, the complementary and competitive, their powers, uh, the effects they have on our biological ability to reason, then we should be able to think about them as a community of civilized people and make decisions. And uh, you know, one of my great fears, to be honest, has been what I see as the systematic erosion of human free will. And, um, you know, not free will as in where does it come from in a deterministic universe, mm. uh, but the, um, the moral implications of free will. And so the example I often give is, um, you know, free will is only as good as its empirical execution. That is when you get a chance to exercise it. And it doesn't matter if you have it, if you can't exercise it, right? So if I incarcerated you, you know, if, if ISIS came into power, it doesn't matter if you had free will because they would deny you your ability to execute it. Mm. And so um, the, but we are voluntarily choosing not to exercise it. And uh, a few examples, you know, um, what movie should I watch? Netflix, what movie should I watch? Well, David, you watch these movies. You should watch this one. Thank you. And next time, even more constrained. And eventually, only one. You know, um, Amazon, what book should I read? Well, people just like you read books just like this. And um, what this is doing, is, you, if you think about it geometrically, is it's contracting the volume of my free choice. And under the, in some sense, economic uh, pretense of allowing me to exercise greater free choice. And, and it is absolutely true that I could say no. I could say no. But it gets harder and harder and harder. And I think that, you know, I've, I've often imagined you could live in a world where, let's imagine I wrote an app, and I sometimes call this app voter app. And what you do is you enter into this app your economic circumstances, where you live, mm. uh, your history of interests in politics, and it will tell you better than you ever could who you should vote for. And let's imagine the equivalent, a medical app. You know, it, it monitors, it's sort of the um, iWatch version 4, right? It, it measures everything about your body that could be measured. And it says, no, you know, I, I, when you go to the restaurant, I, you shouldn't really be eating um, an aubergine tonight, uh, it's time for, you know, whatever, like chicken sandwich or, or the reverse. So, and I, and I think that's not alarmist. I think that over the course of the next decade, um, more and more decisions will be outsourced in this competitive form such that what remains in our competence and in our hands is a tiny particle of freedom. I'm not sure. I guess I don't see that so much in terms of freedom because it's kind of funny you bring up free will because listeners of this podcast will will know that i've spent a lot of time arguing that it's an incoherent yeah. idea i mean it's not to say that that everything else we care about is incoherent i think there are obviously differences between mm -hmm. voluntary and involuntary action and not a lot changes when you get rid of free will but a few things change and and we don't really have time to get into it but my very last podcast was 
me debating with Dan Dennett in a bar about free will. It's important that it was in a bar, Sam. Yes, right. Yeah. <laughs> you had available to you yeah. mechanisms for increasing it. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but I guess to hear those examples, I don't see it so much as a diminution in our freedom. It, it seems like it's there's certainly a, a siloing effect of all this, so that we're we are creating machinery that curates the available choices in such a way that in a way that will presumably reliably give us choices that we prefer to randomness, right? So but I don't, but I, I don't, you see, but that's precisely, let me give you a more obvious example. Hmm. Um, I am a Western male, you're a Western male, you're probably wearing trousers and a shirt and um, the sartorial options available to you are extraordinarily small. Hmm. If you look at world culture, and historically, if you go, you know, go to Persia and Roman Empire and China, and you know, it, the way we have chosen to adorn ourselves has been incredibly diverse and fascinating. And yet, now as Western men, we all look like clones. And mm. I would claim you're not exercising your judgment; um, you're being told precisely how to dress. And where you get to exercise your judgment in is a very, very low-dimensional space of texture and color mm. um, that the the manufacturers of clothing based on purely economic efficiency have decided to give you. And I think that's what I'm thinking about. It's not, you're absolutely right. You could be, you could do a Thoreau, you know, you, you could do your own version of modern civil disobedience and say, mm. no, <laughs> you know, uh, but it's very hard for people. And, and so when you ask me what I'm concerned about, it's not inevitable. It's not deterministic, but unless we choose to, in some sense, um, assert our individuality and our differences, constructive differences, we will, I think, inevitably become a clonal species. Mm. And not only in terms of the way we look and dress, but the way we reason. And, and that, is, so you're asking for my dystopian uh, singularity, that's it. The, the optimistic uh, future is the one where we say enough. Uh, no more conformity, no more over-curation of what you think I should do and think, and a kind of radical assertion of diversity, a radical individuality um, that we somehow reconcile with a, a constructive communitarian drive. And I don't think we've done that historically very well. How to be as different as we can be, but be congenial with one another. Mm. And um, that there is a positive future for me, but I think that when, that's the path of great labor. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think those examples are importantly different, though. I, I totally take your your point on dress. It never occurs to me to even want to wear a kilt or, or something that's not pants and a shirt. And in fact, I in my own life, I take that to an even greater extreme. I mean, I, I, I am aware of just not even wanting to think about what I'm going to wear that day. So I have, I basically have a uniform, right? I just that's wear it. That's the omega point, Sam. You yeah. Yeah. So I, I am the, point. I am the, uh, I'm the canary in the coal mine, sartorially speaking, <laughs> yeah. but take the case of, of Netflix or Amazon book recommendations. So normally what would happen 20 years ago or whenever that was, is you would go into a video store, you'd go into a bookstore and you would just kind of walk the aisles and it would be a fairly, you know, leaving reading book reviews aside, but that's also another curation process. You would walk into a bookstore and just find specific covers 
alluring or titles alluring and things would jump out at you or not in a way that was not at all it was really a, a largely a, a matter of happenstance and not there was there wasn't much information in the system to reliably promote any one among the thousands or tens of thousands of candidates for reading or, or viewing to your your attention and so now what you we have something like Netflix or or Amazon where based on your reading or watching history based on what millions of people very much like you have rated to be incredibly enjoyable you're getting various recommendations now there's definitely again there's I, I see a major liability here in just getting functionally ghettoized intellectually and and ethically where you're you know we we basically this this is happening online for most people where they just they they choose to follow on social media people they already agree with and and there's just a we we get really channelized and the walls of the channel I think are getting higher and higher in terms of the the ideas that we are exposed to it, it seems to me there's you are Sam you know this interject because that's let me be very clear. Mm. I am not a Pollyanna about the past. Right. Yeah. Um, I do not. I'm not arguing. I'm saying something slightly different, which is the tools that we now possess that are so incredible should be allowing us to have freedoms that are unprecedented, not returning us to the ghettos of the past. Mm. And so I'm with you. Uh, the you know, as you say, I mean, I used to choose my albums by their covers. Mm. <laughs> that was, you know, that wasn't necessarily the most thoughtful thing to do, although sometimes it worked. Spent a lot of time listening to Yes. <laughs> yeah, a lot of time listening to No, that isn't the kind of cover that works for me. Uh -huh. but, but yeah, exactly. So the um so I'm not saying the past is great. I'm simply saying that if you develop a technology that could give you incredible freedom, right? Why not use it to do that? That's the thing I'm saying. And I, and, and I think what's so intriguing, right, about the history of civilization and technologies is that with every new technology that offers some increment of possibility, it comes with the greater possibility of its own negation. And so the bookstore example is a wonderful one. We were limited by our access to good bookstores, and most of them, quite frankly, were shitty, right? I mean, and, and they had terrible taste, and it was just endless shelves of self-help books that you would be better off helping us by keeping us warm by burning than, than reading. And so that's true, you know, and I'm very conscious of that, and having Amazon is just a godsend with respect to access to books when you live in remote parts of the world. Um, but what comes along with it is this... Um, you know, all-seeing eye that um, wants to impose out of largely economic considerations constraints on what you do. And it's our job to maintain the freedom of the technology. I mean, that's all I'm saying. I'm mm -hmm. saying, let's fight the instinct of the technology to treat us as a nuisance in a machine learning algorithm that would want to be able to predict us perfectly and surprise it constantly, right? Let's surprise it. And, um, but yes, I, I, I have very little nostalgia for the past. Well, I'm now noticing the time here, David. Let's open it up beyond the planet for a, for a kind of a final consideration. How do you view the prospects of advanced intelligence elsewhere in the universe? I mean, do you have an opinion about the Fermi paradox? You know, yeah, where is everybody? Yeah. I, I, I have an opinion. I don't think it's very well informed. Yeah. The, um, you know, 
I'm fascinated by this. I'm fascinated by space. In fact, I should say that we're currently working on a new festival for New Mexico called Interplanetary, um, which is all about um, the future destiny of life on Earth in the universe. So I'm, I'm, we could talk about that at great length. Mm. Um, in terms of this uh, calculation of um, life elsewhere, it's, as you know, I mean, statistically, it's a real problem because... Um, any well-informed statistical model has to have multiple independent instances for you to make an inference. And the problem with our case is that there is uh, only one. Mm -hmm. And so you can't reason about this question statistically, but you can reason about this question in terms of physical law and uh, evolutionary dynamics. And from that point of view, meaning... Um, you know, physical law to the extent that we can measure it is the same everywhere in the universe. And to the extent that biological mechanisms are emergent of physical law, there's nothing particularly special about the earth. And, um, and by that kind of reasoning, based on mechanics, if you like, uh, I think we have every reason to expect life exists elsewhere. Um, I, but you can't reason from statistics and it's, a, it, and that often leads to a rather, um, fruitless discussion. Uh, but regardless, though, of um, whether there is life in the universe or not beyond our own planet, we have an intellectual obligation to populate it. And so that's where I stand on the matter. Mm. I mean, I, you know, why do we do what we do? And um, I think that if I have any kind of quasi-mythical belief system it's something to do with expanding the sphere of reason and, and, and sympathy into the world and beyond. And um, if we could take the very best of what we've done and push it out into the universe, um, that would be an extraordinary thing. That statement that we have an ethical obligation to populate it is an interesting one, which I think will strike many people as as highly non-obvious. I think it's our ethical obligations to our descendants is something that is on one level obvious, but it's, it's not, I mean, what, what are our ethical obligations to people who don't yet exist? That's, and may never exist. That's, it's interesting to consider. And I, I, I agree that it's, I mean, if we did something that canceled the future of the species, Right. If so, we know we're the we know at at minimum that we have intelligent life on this planet that can enjoy a range of of conscious states that can be incredibly beautiful and fulfilling. And if we did something to end that process and therefore not create our future descendants, if anything is wrong, that is. I mean, it's it's not wrong in the sense that we are causing ourselves or anyone to suffer. I mean, we could all die. We could kill ourselves painlessly in our sleep tonight, right? So there's no suffering necessarily, but you're foreclosing on potentially billions of years of happiness and creativity of a sort that we can't yet imagine. And that would be a terrible thing to do. It occurred to me though, that when you said that it would be great to have a a technology or a device, I mean, essentially something as simple as an abacus that allowed us to internalize a commitment to future generations in a way that we haven't. Because it, I mean, it's very difficult. When you, when you talk about solving a human problem 
that has a, a time horizon longer than your own near-term future or your children's future, something like global climate change, we're really bad at that. I mean, we, we discount the pain of the future so steeply that we cannot prioritize a, a centuries-long problem at all, no matter how grave it is. And if we could create some way of making a commitment to the future more reflexive and more vivid, more, you know, more emotionally and ethically salient to us and internalize that, you know, reliably get people to think in, in those ways, I think that's one thing we, we need. I don't know what that would look like, but the conjunction of your abacus talk and your saying it would be, it would be ethically problematic not to push forward into, into space in future generations, that sparked that idea for me. Yeah. No, I think it's a really intriguing and important point. I would claim that one of the reasons so many of us are drawn to evolutionary thinking, to, to, to the ideas of Lyle and, and Darwin and Wallace, is that they do give us a sense of what time can do. And, um, you know, I mean, for me, you know, it's extraordinary that over the course of billions of years, we've gone from a planet that was looked like the surface of Mars, perhaps, and was lifeless, and it now harbors things that, to bring us full circle to Boltzmann and Shannon, violate the H theorem, right? That the universe is not molecular chaos in this neighborhood. Um, it's the Rolling Stones and Johann Sebastian Bach and Emily Dickinson, right? Mm. And so, you know, uh, and so, and I think, as you say, that delicate, rare things should be preserved. Uh, and developing a, an awareness and a tangible ethics for that is, is really vital. What's your view of changing our, the species in ways more radical than the mere happenstance of evolution? So, you know, genetically engineering changes that, that we presumably well understand into the germline or, or just allowing people to creatively change their, their genomes. Well, it's well. First of all, as you know, I believe it's already happened. It happened with writing, and it happened with mathematics. So I've already asserted that culture is a kind of collective inception event mm. into the brain. So I, I so that's the first point. Um, we've been modifying ourselves forever. I mean, in, in, by either with nutrition or with exercise or with society. And so the question is whether or not this re represents a radical discontinuity uh, in the styles of intervention. And, and I guess that comes down to a question of the time it takes to change the system a lot. Mm. And um, so let me just be clear. We are going to modify ourselves. And um, if, for example, a pandemic emerged with a virus that had a morbidity rate of 80% and someone had invented a modified CRISPR system to render you immune that required a change in the uh, genomes of each cell in your body, it would be adopted. Mm -hmm. Not only it would be adopted, it would probably be made obligatory. So, and that's not really that far-fetched. Uh, and so, and so it just is a matter of, in a matter of time, such things will happen. Um, and some of these will be extraordinary. I mean, we will probably be able to eliminate certain forms of cancer, uh, not all. Um, and we will modify ourselves willingly and, and I think, appropriately. Mm. Um, where, where, the, where, I guess, um, the debate will persist 
is exactly the way it debates persists in the case of enhancement in sport, right? Um, you know, where to draw the line. Um, and, and that comes down to a question of fairness, right? Um, the, the ethics of fairness. And, um, you know, so, you know, I do view the march of technology as kind of inevitable, um, but I would like to accompany it with reason. Um, and, and I think one form of reasoning that's useful in these debates is to find precedence. So when people talk about CRISPR, um, which is our currently most powerful genetic engineering technology, um, it's worth bearing in mind all the things that we've done already to change genetics, um, either naturally or unnaturally. And what we've done to our microbiome, you know, mm. in our diets and biochemically, which is a part of our genome, by the way, and that we are utterly dependent upon. So it always helps, I think, to create um, continuity in reasoning um, to find prior instances that we can use um, to think about the future. So I, the, and I guess, you know, at some point, if we were to colonize other planets and those other planets had different you know, masses such that the effective gravity that we experienced was greater or lower, or they had slightly different compositions of, of, of you know, gaseous molecules in their atmosphere, we would quite willingly re-engineer ourselves. Um, so I, I actually think that, in a sense, is inevitable. Mm. <laughs> yeah. All right. So in, in closing, David, I'm going to ask you a question that you seem uniquely well-poised to find annoying or even mm -hmm. unanswerable given what you said about IQ, but I've asked this of a few smart people on my podcast, and I think I'm going to demand an answer, no matter how much demand you recoil. It, man. Demand it. Who is your vote for the smartest person in human history? If you could, if, if you, you could put one human brain into the room to talk to the, the aliens, who would, you, who would you nominate? Oh, probably John von Neumann. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's actually a, quite an uncontroversial pick, given what I know about him. But you, you want to say a little bit about why? Well, because, and I tell you, because, you know, you, you might say, well, you know, Newton or Poincaré or Einstein. The thing about von Neumann that's so incredible is he created mathematical fields, physical fields, computational fields, and social scientific fields. Mm. And um, that breadth of depth is almost unique to him. Um, and so if you had to pick one, and I wish I could pick several, <laughs> mm. but if you had to pick one, I'd pick him. Yeah, yeah. And just the, the stories about him, the stories about the effect he had on the people around him, which included arguably certainly more famous and influential scientists and mathematicians. I mean, he was surrounded by, as you know, by the most productive scientists of his generation. But there's so many stories about the, the awe in which they held his ability to grasp and creatively interact with what they were doing in, in real time in a way that was just mesmerizing to them. Yeah. You know, he, he did what was so incredible, right, is that not only is there game theory, which he co-invented, and areas of quantum mechanics, um, and then just you know, the nuclear chain reaction stuff and meteorology. Yeah, and, physics, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, but as you point out, in addition to that kind of more traditional scholarly depth, 
he was frequently called upon, as you as you intimate, to solve problems that other people just couldn't even begin to think about. And um, and he's such an interesting case because he was this um, Jewish immigrant to the United States, left Hungary, um, worked on the Manhattan Project, deep moral conscience. Um, so he was a real 360, and um, I guess there aren't so many of them. I don't, I don't know if you had heard this story about him, but on his deathbed, apparently, he was attended by the, the Secretary of Defense and of all the branches of, of the military on the odd chance that he would say something useful about nuclear deterrence. <laughs> yes, you see. <laughs> so that's, that's quite a testament to a, <laughs> yes, a mathematician. Exactly. Yeah. That's right, marvelous. Yeah. I, you, I should just say I used to live, it's a bit biased, because when I was at the Institute for Advanced Study, I lived on John, uh, the von Neumann Drive, uh-huh. which made me very proud. Yeah. So. <laughs> well, listen, David, it's been re- really a pleasure to talk to you, and we could go on for hours and hours, and if anything of interest happens in the world in the next few years, I will definitely invite you back to comment on it, because you, you're you sitting at the confluence of so many interesting lines of inquiry that it's just great to hear your thoughts on more or less everything. Thank you so much. I, I really enjoyed it. I'd be more than happy to come back. Great, great. Before we go, David, I just want people to know where they can find out more about you and about the Santa Fe Institute online. Where would you direct them to so, websites yeah, so, and social uh, media? Absolutely. So the website is www.santafe.edu. And I know that we have Facebook pages and various tweets. And uh, I should just reassure all of your listeners that we are completely reinventing our webpage. And by September, there'll be something very beautiful to look at. In the meantime, you have to suffer through very dense materials, but that's where you can mm-hmm. learn about us and how you can engage with us. That's more importantly. And you, t- are you publicly funded? Is it a matter of private donations to the Institute? How does that work? Yeah, we are a not-for-profit. We're a 501c3 and we're fiercely independent. Um, we're funded really three ways. We're funded by grants, uh, um, federal foundations, um, restricted gifts. We're funded through something called the Applied Complexity Network, and this is uh, largely for profit organizations, Google, eBay, mm. uh, Intel, Fidelity, et cetera. And they become affiliated with us because they're interested in complexity science in their own work. Uh, and then through philanthropy. So it's about a third, a third, a third. Well, I encourage you all to check out the Santa Fe Institute. And David, do you have a, a personal social media presence at all? Are you on Twitter or anything else? I, I'm not. I'm, no. I, I'm so embarrassed. That's why you're so productive. <laughs> That's why you're actually getting something done. So. Well, listen, once again, it's been a great pleasure to to hear your voice and to be continued. Thank you. Thank you.